A reading from Peter's first letter to the early church, chapter 3. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Hey, how y'all doing? It is good to see you today. My name is Ed, and I want to welcome you along with Jason and Molly here today. We are so glad you came out to be here. And if you haven't been with us before, you walked in right in the middle, in fact, almost exactly the middle of this series, uh, we've been looking at a letter written by a follower of Jesus named Peter, and it's the very first one he would write to the churches that had been scattered at that time. And one of the reasons they're so scattered is because it's the beginning of persecution that will attack the church for the next century or so. And we've said, here's Nero, he's come into power, and Nero's begun to make it really tough on the Christians in the Roman Empire. Now, just so you know, it hasn't always been that way. I mean, for the earliest times when there were Christians, they were, they were probably just ignored because, after all, there, there's only a few thousand of them amongst this huge, almost worldwide empire. They're not even hardly noticed. And then, eventually, when they do begin to be noticed a little bit, they're mostly just ostracized. They are sort of persecuted by their what the Romans see as their Jewish brothers, but they're not really heavily persecuted by the government. But now, when Peter writes, every week when they come together, they're wondering who won't show up, not because they just can't come or because they've got a vacation somewhere, but because they might be dead. They're physically persecuted. They're suffering physically, and Peter wants them to know there is a way to respond when the culture begins to change that is the way of Jesus and there's a way to respond that is not. Because, of course, there's just a human response to opposition that every single person has. In fact, those who study human kind of responses say, oh, when I was growing up, we were taught that there were just two. There was either fight or flight. But now they also tell us there's freeze. That some people, when forced with opposition, they don't know what to do, so they just they get stuck. There's either fight or flight or freeze. My whole life long... Well, I'm a fighter. My whole life long, when there's a problem, I've run at every problem head on. And I don't say that because I'm proud of my response. My reaction is as much a wrong response as people who 
who, who flee or who freeze. In fact, my way to fight has turned people who were really just trying to teach, uh, teach me and help me into enemies. And it has led me a long way from following the way of my master, Jesus. And Peter, he knows that all too well. One of the things that I find about people who know anything about uh, the story of Jesus and any of the disciples, if you know the name Peter, one of the things that most people say is, I'm probably like Peter because Peter's always sticking his foot in his mouth and he's so impulsive and he's always just so out there. In fact, Peter's the one that you don't know it, that when Jesus takes him to the garden, he's one of the ones that gets invited to go and pray and Peter can't stay awake. He just falls asleep and then when he does wake up and he sees the enemies coming against him, he grabs a sword and cuts off an ear. And Jesus says, that's not our way, Peter. That's not the way we handle opposition. Peter gets it. I mean, as Peter grows in Christ, as Jesus begins to mature him, as the Holy Spirit begins to take place in his life, he wants to say to these Christians, now the persecution's coming from everybody, and you're all going to have your own natural reaction, but you cannot go with your gut instinct. You cannot respond the way you want to. I know you have a way that when you're attacked that you feel like it's the right time, but this is not a time for impulsive, natural kind of responses. When we face pressure, when we face opposition, when we face persecution, we have to have real intention about how we respond. And so for the last few weeks, we've been studying in 1 Peter, and Peter reminds the Christians that it starts with knowing You've got to put the right frame around your life. If you're going to react to any of this right, you have to have the right frame to begin to start with. So he starts with saying to them, you are not a citizen of the empire. We, we are not citizens of this place. We do not pledge our allegiance to this kingdom. We are aliens and strangers here. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And if you can remember that, if you can hold on to that, when, when your world begins to fall apart, when the circumstances of your life, which often, too often, even followers of Christ, we put hope in our circumstances being right, if we can realize that I've entrusted the frame of my life to the kingdom of God, that Jesus is the king of my life, then no matter what happens in the circumstances of your life, you can have this thing in your life that's like joy almost. In the midst of sorrow, you can have this assurance that's almost like gladness, not because you, you're not sorrowful, but because you have a hope in Jesus, in King Jesus' kingdom that Peter says will not spoil or fade or diminish. It is kept secure for us. And so that becomes the frame. That's a perspective that you start with when you begin to feel opposed. And because of that, we don't have to live like everybody else in our culture. We don't have to run fast and try to gain everything we can. We don't have to live lives that are just like everybody else. We don't have to look like everybody else. We can live lives that are set apart, which is what we found early on is what holy actually means. It means to be set apart for a purpose. It means that I am holy. It doesn't mean what I thought it meant when I was growing up, by the way. You know what I thought holy meant? I thought it meant self-righteous. <laughs> because every person I knew that somebody would say, oh, they're really holy. You know what I thought they were? <laughs> They were holier than me, holier than thou, they, we called it. But the one thing for sure, when you take holy and you put self-righteous to it, you know what happens to holy? Holy goes away. Holy and self-righteous, they cannot exist. It turns out self-righteous is as much as a human response as is whether you fight or flight or flee. 
It's a same kind of thing because it all grows out of this thing of pride and arrogance. And at the core of hum- honest, uh, holiness in Jesus is humility. So for the last two weeks, Jason and Nathan have been teaching us that we model ourselves after our leader, Jesus. We make ourselves like him. We follow in his steps. He left us an example. And we humble ourselves to serve every person. And of course, it shows up in the way we're married. We, we don't count that as a place where we seek to put power over each other. It shows up in the way we parent. It shows up in natural kind of places where we could choose to have power, where, like where we work. Instead, we choose to be servant leaders just like Jesus. We use our power for the sake of the people that we're working with. So here we are, right in this passage that you just heard read a few moments ago. Peter speaks to us and to this group of outsiders in the first century and their increasingly hostile culture and challenge them to respond to the opposition in a distinct way. Here it is. He says, you've got to respond with deep conviction. But that conviction, it has to be mixed with compassion. You have to have extreme conviction, but it has to be a mixture with compassion. Peter knows that if when our faith is called to stand against the opposition, that when we live as foreigners and aliens in the land belonging to another kingdom, counting our hope in someplace else, the temptation is when we want to just be loving people, if I'm just naturally a person who just wants to be loving, then what it comes across as is I just go along with. Whatever's going on in the culture, I just go along with that. I act as if what everyone believes is just okay with me, whatever they believe. And I kind of soften my convictions over time, and I become very much like them. So he repeats to the followers of Jesus, we do not conform. We do not become a part of the culture. We don't believe like everybody else believes just because everybody believes it. We don't behave like everybody behaves just because everybody behaves that way. We live out our convictions. We believe what he wrote in the book. He says at the very first chapter, people, they're like grass, and their beauty is like a flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, it remains forever. So when you get older like me, you'll realize people and their opinions and their ideas and their thoughts and these new beliefs that everybody thinks, they're just recycled old beliefs and they seem attractive at the moment. They're like beautiful grass that springs up and everybody runs to it, but the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word does not change. And if you study history, you know there are no new ideas. They're just recycled old ideas that come and try to push out the truth of God, the word of God. But our foundation in Jesus, it remains forever. The word of God is our standard. Now, if you've been paying attention at all over the last decade or two, or you weren't born in the last decade or two, those of us who have lived more than 25 or 30 years, we know there have been major cultural shifts. I mean, major cultural shifts. But what I want to say to you is, that's not all that unusual. It really isn't all that unusual. And it really shouldn't throw us off. Because we live in a deeply broken world, and it's the way the world has always worked. And so in the midst of shifting cultural standards, 
Followers of Jesus are called to be the same. We are to be people of deep conviction and extreme compassion. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. And to get to this place, to start this discussion, we need to make a difference between the word belief and the word conviction. So it is helpful to think about belief as an acceptance of truth. It's just the mental acknowledgement that something is true. But conviction goes a step beyond belief. Conviction is a demonstration that I believe this truth. Belief is a recognition of truth. Conviction is a demonstration of belief. It's the truth lived out. It's something you base your life on. So the question is, how do you know if something's a belief or a conviction? Well, the Christians to whom Peter is writing are in the midst of finding out. Maybe when they first started following Jesus, they were just mocked by their neighbors for how they lived. They didn't live sexually free like the rest of their Greco-Roman culture. They didn't try to enforce their morality on people they worked with, but they just didn't engage in it, and so they were made fun of. But then as the heat turned up from the government that said, you will pledge allegiance to the empire and say that the emperor is Lord or else, when the believers wouldn't do that, when they said, we only have one Lord and his name is Jesus, then they had a problem. This was a crime. For this belief, you could lose your life. And so these believers are in the middle of finding out, is Jesus being Lord a belief or a conviction? Because there are some things we think are convictions, but then we start to experience some pressure, maybe from family, maybe some friends, and it turns out it's not much of a conviction. It was just something I believed. A preacher named Howard Hendricks used to say it like this, a belief is something you'll argue about, but a conviction is something you'll die for. And Peter's writing to Christians who are going to die for their convictions. And there's this tendency to want to abandon their convictions and go along with what everyone else does. So Peter warns them, when you are a person of conviction, you're going to do things differently. And when you do things differently, a lot of people won't like it. As long as you kind of keep your beliefs to yourself and just believe them, then no one really minds. But the moment you start to live out your beliefs and become a person of conviction, then it feels like an indictment on other people. And so a lot of people don't like it. It's why in chapter four, Peter is going to say, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. Of course, they're surprised that you're living differently than they are that you have these convictions that they don't have. They personally attack you. But Peter says that they will have to face God who stands ready to judge everyone, both the living and the dead. So keep that in mind when you're tempted to just kind of acquiesce, when you're tempted to just give in, just remember that you too will be held accountable for the words you speak and the life you live. And so increasingly, here's the tension for us. We are called to be convicted and to be compassionate, but oftentimes those values are presented as contrary to one another. Like if you're convicted about something, you believe that this is true and these other things aren't true, then you have to stand up for your convictions. You have freedom of speech and God needs you to stand up for your convictions to try to force others to live by your convictions. The problem is it's hard to do that from a place of compassion and love. 
And so then others of us just want to let our convictions go. We don't want to hold convictions that disagree with others because we don't want to be labeled as intolerant. Tolerance is defined as the ability or willingness to recognize and respect the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. Tolerance does not mean I have to agree with everything you agree with. I'm tolerant when I recognize and respect the existence of your opinion or behavior without having to agree that you're right. And this is important. This is the kind of tolerance that Jesus modeled for us. I can respect a person, I can care about a person, I can value a person, and I can still think that they are wrong. Jesus was constantly doing this as a Jewish man. He violated all kinds of his Jewish cultural social practices in an effort to be tolerant, to reach out to other people that others were not. And this is the life to which we are called in our world as well, a life rooted in the conviction that Jesus is right about everything and fueled by his loving compassion for everyone. But the problem in our divided culture is, and Molly already hit on it, is this word tolerance and how almost everybody uses it. When it comes to what we believe, well, tolerance means to most people that all beliefs, all values, all life choices, all truth, they're equal. I believe this is true. You believe that's true. These two things contradict. I still believe they're both true. That's being tolerant. For instance, I, I have a friend that believes, I don't know that he's ever tried this, but he argues with me about it, that if you arrive first at the roundabout, it's okay to go left. <laughs> I know he's wrong. <laughs> it, you can't go left in a roundabout. It doesn't matter how much you believe it. It doesn't matter if you arrive for, first. Every time you go left in a roundabout, you're absolutely wrong. Those can't be true. They are mutually contradictory. I have a neighbor who believes that everything's God. He's, he's Hindu by background, super in, impressive person. He believes that everything, including uh, the spirits and the trees and the chairs and everything is a, is a form of God. He believes it's all God. I believe that there is one God. We see him best in the man named Jesus. I can love him. I can be a neighbor to him. I can help him. He can help me. We can love each other. But I cannot say that we're both right. As a follower of Jesus, we have to look at our culture through the lens of the truth of Jesus, not doing so much what people have tended to do, which is look at the truth of Jesus through the lens of our culture. But many people over the last few years, this has been the tripping point. This has been the point where everything begins to shift. And it has not just been in the culture, it has happened in the church. And by the way, there are way too many of us in religious, it's not just religious and sexual areas that everybody wants to talk about. The chaos that's being caused in our culture among Christians in our culture is that we mix political beliefs, which we found out way too often matter way more to people than what Jesus had to say. That people have begun to vote in certain ways, and once they vote that way, they just believe that the way they voted is the way that Jesus would vote. And they stopped looking at the leaders of their parties and begin to say that because that person is the leader of my party does not mean that they necessarily are the person that is right about everything. There is a person who is right about everything, and his name is Jesus. So, 
as a whole, we've done this terrible job of looking at political leaders that stand for either one of the parties and truths that are either one of our parties stand with and generations of people that come after us that have been raised by parents and grandparents who they were told were Christian all along. Now, they don't have a problem with that, what you believe. They don't think you believe it. They think you follow a political system, not a man named Jesus. They don't have a problem believing that he might be the Son of God. They no longer think you believe he's the Son of God. So throughout this thing, Peter is calling people with strong convictions. Even as the culture changes, we don't change the way that we look at truth. There's a strong call as well to be people of compassion. And these things in so many of our minds, are they're pitted against each other. If I have a conviction, it means that I have to get angry at every violation of my conviction. I've got to talk about it. I've got boycott anybody that goes against it. I've got to use strong, passionate words. I've got to post about it all the time. I've got to let everybody know connected with me that I do not agree with that. So I will make everybody and everything that stands in opposition to my conviction my enemy, even though I know that at the core of being a Christian is I move toward my enemy, not push them away. That at the core of following Jesus is the call of enemy love. And when I do move against them and hold something against them, the only person that wins is our real enemy because we do not fight against flesh and blood. We don't. See, as Christians, I'm called to have deep convictions, absolutely. But how we're to be known is not by our convictions. I have not been called to be known by anybody who lives near me or anybody who knows me by the depth of my convictions. Wouldn't it have been great if Jesus had just said out loud how Christians were to be known in the world? Maybe if he could just made a statement that said something like, the world will know that you're my followers if you have really deep convictions. But he didn't say that. Instead, he said, they will know you're my followers by what? This is not hard, folks. It's by the way that you love. It's by the way you love. Everyone, he says, will know that you are my followers by this, if you love one another. Does that mean in the name of love that I sacrifice my convictions? Never. Because, of course, one of my convictions is that Jesus is right about everything. Does it mean that in the name of love, that in the deep name of convictions, that I oppose everybody that's against me? No, because one of my deep convictions is that I move toward people who are opposed to me. But many, many of us, of us, have gotten this wrong. We have messed this up, and it's a big problem in our current culture because we are known way more by our convictions or what people think are our convictions than by the way we love people in our world. And because this is so important for us to understand, we need to spend a moment praying, confessing, and reflecting. So let's do that now. You know, living with compassion and conviction at the same time it's not as difficult as it may seem when you look at it through the lens of Jesus 
Because when you do that, our convictions lead us to compassion. Because remember, following Jesus is not some system of belief about the afterlife or just some alternate way of doing spirituality. Following Jesus is simply a conviction that Jesus is king. And what that means is that we are convinced he's right about everything and he has the right to tell me what to do about everything. That means we're trying to obey everything that he commanded us to do. So the question we're going to wrestle down today is, how you doing on that? Are there truths of God that you just admit, I'm ignoring? This isn't about how you defend those truths to others. I'm asking you, in your life, are you living up to the beliefs that you say you are convicted of? Or is there some place where you're failing to do that? And I want to invite you in these next few moments to talk to God about that, whatever it is. And before we do that, we're going to listen and read together the words of Jesus. So as we do around here is our sort of custom. There's going to be some words on the screen. I'm going to start reading, and when you see the words in bold, I'm going to invite you to read them out loud with me. Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So how are you doing it living up to your convictions? Take a minute. Talk to God about it. One of Jesus' most clear commandments when he told his followers, as we just heard from Ed teach us, when he said, here's what we're going to be known by, he said, we will be known, my followers will be known by the way they love. So that means our greatest conviction as followers of Jesus is that we must become people who learn how to love everyone always. So here's the next question. How is your relationship with Jesus leading you to have more compassion for other people, especially other people with whom you do not agree? And before we talk to God about that, we're going to read some more of Jesus' words together. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So how are you doing at loving your enemies? How are you doing at blessing those who curse you? Would you take a moment and just begin to pray? Start by praying for those you disagree with and ask God to help you show compassion because you are convicted 
Jesus is right about everything. Let's do that now. Father, teach us how to love like you do. Help us to become fully your disciples, your followers. And that we might learn from you that our greatest conviction is simply to love everyone always, including those we disagree with. Give us your spirit to guide us. Remind us of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to just be clear one more time again. Uh, we don't ever sacrifice and set aside convictions that come from Jesus. In fact, we've quoted to you a couple of times now different parts where Jesus says in John chapter 13, so now I'm giving you a new command. You must love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must, you should love one another. And your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. He says, a new command I give you. Now, anyone that studies the scripture knows, in fact, it's not a new command. It's not a new command at all. In fact, the wording is the same in the Old Testament. Here's what he added. He says, the new part is, as I have already loved you, as I've demonstrated to you what love looks like, as I gave my life up for you, that's what makes it a new command. He redefines the whole definition of love. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus gave his life for us. That's how radically he redefined love for us. Here's the whole way that we do it. Peter talks about this kind of Jesus-inspired love. And what we heard at the very beginning of the time I got up in verse 8 of chapter 3, he says, finally, all of you, all of the believers, you should be of one mind. You should sympathize with each other. You should love others as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted. Keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's what God's called you to do, and he will grant you a blessing. That's the way of our master. That's what we've been called to do. And if we suffer for doing good, if we suffer for doing what right, we're just following in the steps of our Savior who died with no sin. So Peter says in verse 18, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. That's our driving force, that God leads us to Jesus and through Jesus to everyone else in the world. So what about it? What if we just decided 
we would just do what Jesus said to do? What if instead of no, anyone in this room meeting a changing quote, even under their breath, was, was saying to people, you know, well, eventually all those people are going to go to hell. What if we don't talk about the second coming of Jesus where all of this will be burned and it will all be made right? What if instead of that, we decide we will do it Jesus' way? What if instead we decide we will love each other deeply? What if instead of a world divided by race and gender and all the mess over taxes and politics in our world, we became a place of unity and love and we showed radical acts of kindness to people who of all backgrounds and that's how we became known. Not because what we hate, not because what we stand against in our culture, but who we are for. And I'll say this to you. This has been tried before by the people Peter wrote to. They decided to do it. They decided that when the pressure came, they would not fight back. They did not try to overthrow the government. They decided instead to do exactly what Jesus called them to do, to love their oppressors, to pray for those. When cursed, they blessed. When things would go wrong in the world, they just loved the people no matter who was at fault. And they changed their world to the place that around the world now, the name of Jesus is known on every continent. And I believe it could happen again. That if we would allow people to see our compassion for every single person, for the people that are most opposed to you, for those who would disagree with you, that they would begin again to care about our convictions. And then what Peter said was true. Then you could give an answer for the hope that they ha have in you when they ask. When they ask for the hope you have, then you can give it. But to do that... We've got to have convictions that are deep in us that Jesus is right and I will follow him no matter what. And we have to have compassion for every person. We have to have convictions and compassion because conviction without compassion, the church in America has done more harm than good with conviction with no compassion. We have done so much damage in this world. And if we have compassion with no conviction, then we just join the march of everybody else in our world that says, whatever, man. Just love everybody. And in fact, we don't care about anybody. But when we are known by those who disagree with us, when we're known by the ones who disagree with us for our compassion, then they will begin to care about our convictions. This it's the way of Jesus. It's the way that we live out our faith in this culture. Isn't it easy to agree with people who agree with you? Isn't it easy to respect people who respect you? Isn't it easy to love people who are loving toward you? Jesus said, even the worst sinners do that. How are you better than they? Even the worst do that. But our culture is giving us a great opportunity to live out a new command. When people oppose us, we are for them. We stand with deep convictions, and one of our deep convictions is that God has made every person in his image as a creature to be loved. And we stand in that place.
a few years before the pandemic, I think it was 2019, uh, I couldn't find it because they've updated this article and published it again. New York Times columnist uh, Nicholas Kristof wrote a column praising Christians in the world, and it was such a remarkable column that I bookmarked it so that I could have it eventually, and today is the day. He says, in our country, in our world, around the world, Christians are disproportionately the most generous people on the planet. They more than anyone else, give more than 10% of their income to charities, mostly church-related, he admits. More important, he says, Christians are disproportionately to be found among the front lines at home and abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, rape, human trafficking, and genocides. It's Christians at the forefront of that. And then he says, some of the bravest people I have ever met in my life have all been Christians who truly lived out their convictions. And then he says, I love this line, I am not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of them risking their lives in this way. And it sickens me to see their faith mocked in our world. He sees the compassion. He noted the love. He's not particularly religious, but he could not argue. And he stood for us. There's something different when it's lived that way. Look, we're, we're surrounded by people who don't believe what we believe. We're surrounded by people that don't share our convictions, who don't really care about God's standards. Why should they? They did not agree to them. They did not make Jesus Lord. We did. We said we would stand with him. And we can blame the decline of our culture and on arts, all sorts of things. I mean, it is way easier to blame people. It just doesn't change anything. We can blame elected officials and activist judges and unconstitutional rulings and secular entertainment and social media and the people are all going to hell and all of that. But you've got to wonder, what if Christians in our culture actually did what Jesus said to do? What if we just said we're going to do it? What if we put the same amount of energy into actually living the way he said to live? You know, like we would be extravagant in the way we love people. That we'd be a church where single parents and orphans and the fatherless were welcomed and they were included as a part of the family. What if we just said that we would not judge other people because Jesus is the only judge and we actually cared about people who were in prison. You know, one of the things that Jesus said at the end of life, he's going to separate people over is where we care about those who are in prison or not. What if we just said, hey, we're going to do what he said to do no matter what happens. Don't you wonder if it would have some impact and that every week when we say he was right, that he might be right about this too? What if the world could see that instead of what it currently sees? But don't forget, Jesus didn't say you went and do, had to go do this on your own. He put us together in his body. We get to do this together. We are his family we get to march in his name for the, the, the prize of being loving in his name. We get to be loving in action, his disciples loving one another. And that's why every week we say to you, this is not some private spirituality. You are a part of a community, the body of Christ. And we want 
you to feel invited to be a part of our community today where we say every week we're trying to learn from Jesus how to love everyone always and you're invited to be a part of that that's why we've said it several times go to the next step center see what's happening in one, one hour next step class where we could help you take steps toward Jesus and this community and one of the ways that we keep Jesus at the center of this community is that every week we remember what he's done for us in the meal of communion. And so Jason's going to come and lead us as we take together.